Hey, this is Pastor Sean Beatty from Clovis Hills Community Church. We're so glad you're listening to our podcast. If you want more information about the church, go to www.clovishills.com or you can download our app in your iTunes or Google Play Store. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. How are we doing? It was a beautiful day today. Oh, my gosh. So, hey, we are so glad you guys made it tonight. And um, there will be root beer floats out in the pavilion afterwards. So it's all good. But that doesn't mean don't ask any questions, okay? Because <laughs> you just want to get to the root beer floats. Here's how, here's how it's going to work tonight. Um, Mark is going to get up. He's going to give a little bit of his testimony and how he got to be where he's at. And then um, after he gives his testimony, he's going to open the floor to questions. Now, Pastor Scott and I will have microphones, and we're going to walk around. And if you have a question, you just raise your hand, and we'll come to you. Here's the rule. You don't get to take the microphone out of the pastor's hand. You never touch a pastor's microphone, okay? Um, and don't be the person that takes over and speaks for 30 minutes while we're doing a Q&A as well. Just ask, ask the question and uh, give, give Mark some ample time to to answer it. Um, I've seen him do this before, and I'm looking, really looking forward to it, because he, uh, as Lee, Lee Strobel has said, he's the best there is at it, and I, I really believe that. He's very good at it. So, um, yeah, not, no pressure. So, um, let's do this. We'll pray, and then uh, when I say amen, let's give him a, a warm welcome, okay? Father God, we thank you. Um, thank you for t- today. We thank you um, for your word, and we thank you that tr- all truth comes from you. If it is true, it's yours, and you own it, and you made it, and you created it. So, Father, I pray tonight that you help us find more of that. I pray for anyone that's here tonight, Lord, if they're skeptical, Lord, bless them for coming, bless them for their questions, and Lord, I pray that um, some of their questions may be answered tonight, and they would be able to draw closer to you, Lord. So we thank you. Holy Spirit, come on this place tonight, please. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, all right, let's give it up for Mark Middleberg. All right, I got to hold the mic this time. Well, great to have you back. Thanks for coming back. I know it's a busy day, and when you were here this morning, 6.30 comes very quickly, and I just appreciate you all coming back. And uh, before, as uh, Sean said, before we actually jump into your questions, I just wanted to share a couple things. Uh, I mentioned this morning I want to tell you a story about a couple of students, and I thought maybe even before that I'll just give you a little uh, touch of my story, which is actually in... Uh, the Confident Faith book, it, it, toward the end of the book, I tell some of this. But uh, my background was I was raised in a Christian home. Um, I didn't come out of skepticism. Um, I didn't come to Christ through this big intellectual journey like Lee Strobel did, or like my friend Jay Warner did, or Josh McDowell did, or a lot of the people I teach with and refer to. Uh, I was raised believing the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. Uh, and I think that was a great way to grow up. My parents actually met at Wheaton College, so that's almost like a marriage made in heaven, I think. Um, you know, and I was raised, as my dad would often say, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, which is a King James version for something. But uh, I was, I'm very happy for my spiritual heritage. Um, but about the time I got in junior high, I wanted to have fun. I thought fun meant doing what I wanted to do, uh, and I kind of became a low-key prodigal son, went the wrong way. Um, finally, at age 19, came back, gave my life to Christ, and then 
not long, not real long after that, went to college. And I had that experience. I don't know if any of you saw the movie God's Not Dead, the original. I had that kind of experience. My professor wasn't quite as rabid <laughs> as the, the guy in that movie. Um, but I had a professor who loved to challenge what he considered to be the, simpli the simplistic beliefs of his Christian students. And he would, you know, talk about the Bible. He'd say, you know, there's good, there's some good stuff in here, which was, you know, a compliment from him. But he said it's also full of myths and mistakes and uh, stuff got added later and you can't really trust it. And, you know, the Bible, excuse me, the God you believe in is kind of the traditional view and that's kind of out of vogue in philosophy these days. And he would just go on and on. And I wanted to challenge him, but I knew I didn't know how. I didn't know what I, you know, I knew what I believed. I didn't know why. And, you know, I, I knew if I stood up and said, oh, yeah, well, Ma and Pa say you're wrong. You know, I, I thought that that's going to really go over great. Um, so what it did is it forced me to study, to say, I, I don't agree with this guy based on what I think I know, but what do I really know? I better study. Maybe I'm wrong. And I know my parents are sincere, but maybe they're wrong. Some, someone's parents are wrong. You know, I mean, our parents don't all agree with each other, so somebody's wrong. Maybe it's mine. I hate to think that. But, but it really thrust me into some study, and I read a bunch of books, and I found some mentors in this whole area of, you know, knowing what we believe and the philosophy of religion and apologetics and so on. And finally reached the point where I got confident, you know, not that I had answers to every question, um, and I, by the way, if you came tonight with some real trick question from the book of Second Hesitations in the Old Testament, you know, stump the band, you'll stump me. I, I don't claim to know every trivia th trivial thing about Scripture. I don't even know a lot of the bigger things. But I do feel like I've studied to the point where I could be confident. And I actually ended up doing some large group meetings with InterVarsity campus, uh, ministry on campus and actually invited my professor because I was going to refute <laughs> what he had been teaching us in the class. And it actually went very well, and he actually came. He didn't like it, but he did come. Um, but that's kind of my journey. And, you know, if we address our doubts and our questions in a right way and really seek truth, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7, that if you seek, you will find. If you knock, the door will be open. And that's what I found to be true for me was... The more I studied and sought truth, the more confident I became that, again, not that we can cross every T and dot every I with every minutia of answers, but that the Christian worldview has better answers and more answers. And I really believe that, and I hope I can demonstrate that tonight. Uh, so I'm going to do my best. Um, the other story I wanted to tell you is actually in the other book, the, uh, uh, the Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask uh, book that's also, uh, some of you have already gotten and it's back there. Um, but I, I actually start the book with that and I'll just tell you the story briefly. Um, this was years later um, after I went to college, I went to grad school, I got a master's degree in philosophy of religion, and then I was hired as a leader of the first director of evangelism uh, at Willow Creek Community Church, uh, which was an exciting and intimidating role to come into fresh out of school. It's a, it was a church then of only 7,000 people. 
Um, now it's like a, it's 25,000 people. Um, but it was in the suburbs of Chicago, and I was hired the same day as a character I'd never met before named Lee Strobel. That's how we met. Uh, get this, our boss was Don Cousins, who you may have heard that last name. Uh, his son is Kirk Cousins, the quarterback, you know, with the Redskins, now with the Vikings. Go Vikes. Um, I actually live in Denver now, but... Uh, Go Broncos. I saw, I saw a bunch of horses on signs by a high school here, and I thought, Broncos. But I guess it's some other team here. But anyway, so year, this is several years after school. I was working at the church, and real exciting, busy place, and we were doing all kinds of classes and seminars and debates like the one I mentioned this morning. And um, and we had lots of people visiting, always with questions, always calling. We did a lot of Q&A things like this. But one morning, I had just got into work at my office at the church, and the receptionist rang the phone, and she said, Mark, there's a young man, a high school student, that wants, he asked for you by name. I said, great, put him on. And I hadn't heard his name before, but he, he, uh, I said, hello, and he said, are you Mark Middleberg? I said, yeah, and I said, uh, he said, great, uh, I'm calling you, and here's, here's his opening line. He said, I'm calling you because I used to be a Christian. I said, okay, you've got my attention, uh, tell me more. He said, well, I grew up in the Christian faith. I go to a church here in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, not your church, another uh, smaller church, but uh, he said, I was raised, you know, I went through catechism, I, I I got the certificate, I passed the test, I know what I'm supposed to know, except I don't know why it's true. And uh, when he called me, it was in the fall of that year, but he said, last spring, I started to have a lot of questions, and so I started raising them, like at church, and he said, like, I raised them with my youth leader, and said, how do we know this stuff? How do we know the Bible's really God's word, or and maybe it's just a collection of poetic religious stuff? I mean, how do we know? And uh, I said, well, that's a good question. He said, that's what I thought. And I said, well, what did the leader say? And he, he said, he said, you just need to have more faith. And, you know, if you just believe more or harder or with more effort or you know, whatever, th those doubts will go away. Have you ever heard that answer? That's a really bad answer, by the way. <laughs> uh, and I hated hearing it, but I've heard that a lot. And it's, it's the kind of thing Christians say when maybe they haven't studied or something. But, um, but I, I said, wow, I, that's, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I said, what did you do? He said, well, uh, I was frustrated by it because I thought, if this is true, there ought to be some evidence, you know. And um, I said, I agree. And I said, what did you do? He said, well, then I realized, you know, I had another chance because over the summer, every summer, we go to our church camp. And it's a different set of leaders. So he said, I realized I could ask the camp teachers the same questions, and maybe they could help me. And again, this kid wasn't some cynic, you know, trying to ridicule faith or something. He was trying to hang on to his faith and just looking for information. So I said, well, how did that go? He goes, it didn't go well at all. He said, I started asking my questions, and the camp director said, you know, oh, shh, you know you're, you're going to confuse the other campers. Uh, those questions are better kept to yourselves. Self and he, he's and this kid said, "Well, but I need to know. I want to know if this is true." He said, "Why don't you ask your youth leader? You know, when you get back home, you know." I said, "Wow, that's frustrating." He said, "Tell me about it." 
And I said, well, what, what did you do? He said, well, I went back home from the camp this last summer. And he said, now school has started again this fall. And he said, I'm really at a point where I'm basically done with my faith, as I said at the beginning. And he said, one other thing you might find interesting is he said, I used to have a Bible study of high school students from my school that would meet at my house every week. And he said, there are a lot of good friends, so we didn't want to quit meeting. So we decided to keep meeting. But since I don't believe this stuff anymore, we now have kind of changed the purpose of the group. He said, we don't call it a Bible study anymore. Now we call it our skeptics group. I said, oh, um, that's nice. Um, <laughs> thanks. Thanks for sharing. Um, I said, you know, I, I hate hearing that, but and it's hard to blame you if you can't get answers. I said, I'm curious what led you to call me today. And he said, well, uh, a guy I know, I think it was maybe someone at his church. He said, a guy I know who's a, more, an older Christian said he didn't know how to answer my questions, but he thought he knew about you and he had heard some class you had taught or something. He said, he gave me your name and number and said, before I totally ditch my faith, make one more phone call. So this is that call. Like, no pressure, right? I said, look, I'm busy. You leave me alone. No, I didn't say that. I said, actually, I had like this alarm going off. Like, this is an emergency. This is urgent. Let's, um, let's do something here. And I said, you know what, this is really important. And I said, I'd like to meet with you. He said, and he was, he was like surprised I was even willing to meet with him. I said, no, not only do I want to meet with you, can we do it really soon, like maybe this afternoon? He goes, really? And I said, yeah. He goes, oh, I'd love to. And I said, okay, come in right after lunch. And I just cleared my uh, calendar for that afternoon. And he came, he showed up, and he had another high school student with him who also was going through the same questions, part of his skeptics group. And uh, they came in, uh, I had a little corner office in the basement of the church, no windows, you know, we went in, shut the door and talked for three and a half hours. Uh, I don't think we even took a break. I think there was sweat on the walls by the time we were done. But we had a great conversation and he just asked good questions, the kinds of questions, you know, I had dealt with earlier in college. And the kinds of questions I'm guessing a lot of you have tonight and the kinds of things we ought to be ready to answer. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 in the Bible tells us as Christians, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for the reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. I mean, that's a command for us. So again, I pl applaud you if you're a Christian for coming to get, you know, more answers. Um, and if you're not a Christian, I applaud you for coming to see if it makes sense. Um, by the end of that three and a half hours, I could tell, you know, I was giving him lots of stuff and I'm handing him, you know, books to read and, and magazine articles, making copies of things and giving them to him. Um, and by the end, you know, it was like five o'clock and he's going, well, you know, I've probably taken enough of your day. And, um, he said, this has been really helpful. And I could sense the ice was melting. I mean, it, it, we were getting somewhere with him. And then, I'll never forget, he goes, I, I really appreciate it. And he said, you know, I, I've taken a lot of your time, so I'm hesitant to ask you this. I said, that's all right, what? He said, um, you would never consider coming to my skeptics group and, like, talking to the whole room full of students about this stuff, would you? And it was like, well, you know, I'm going to have to pray about this. Yes! God said yes! Uh, you know, and I just told him, I said, I'd love to do that. And, and again, emergency beepers are going off in, you know, the back of my soul or somewhere 
And uh, I said, I'd love to come. He said, maybe sometime this fall. I said, maybe the next meeting. He goes, okay, it's this Tuesday or whatever. And I said, I'd love to come. And then I had an idea. I said, you know, uh, I invited you this morning when you called to come, and you brought a friend with you. I'm glad you did. Uh, now you're inviting me. Can I bring a friend? He said, oh, that'd be great. So I brought Lee, the Case for Christ, Strobel with me. And uh, we had a great time. And uh, on our way over there, we're, you know, saying, all right, how should we approach this, you know, Lee said, why don't I start with my testimony? I said, that's good. You know, that, that's good for an hour right there. Um, and, uh, and then I said, I'll, I'll share mine too, even though mine isn't quite as skeptical, but I had to kind of reaffirm my faith. And that's some of these guys, probably the guy that called me. And so we went and we spent about an hour and a half telling our stories. And then, don't worry, we're not going to go that long. I mean, the total amount tonight, but uh, then we opened it up for Q&A and went another two, two and a half hours. I mean, so again, it was like almost four hours again, but this is just a high school, a living room full of high school students all over couches, chairs, tables, you know, rafters, um, and they just had great questions, and they were hungry for information, and by the, get this, by the end of the night, the student whose home we were in, who had first called me, recommitted his life to Christ. And his friend, yeah. Um, wish I would have thought of the light bulb thing, you know. That would have, all the good ideas come too late, you know. But, um, but then his friend, who he had brought with him to my office, about two weeks later made his, a first-time commitment to Christ. And my favorite part of the story is they, turned their uh, skeptics group back into a Bible study again. So, um, now, yeah, all the stories don't turn out that way, um, obviously. And a lot of young people, as I mentioned in the services this weekend, a lot of young people, their faith is under attack, and a lot of them don't get to the answers, and a lot of them are walking away from their faith. Maybe some of you are some of those folks, but I really believe um, if you search and seek, you know, as Jesus said, you'll find. And I want to try to help with that tonight. And so we're going to open it up now. And Sean, do you have any other instructions or what, how, how do you want to go from here? Um, yes. First and foremost, the Warriors are winning 88-67. So, you know, some of you made great sacrifices to be here. The other is... Um, so the way this always works is it's super awkward because no one wants to ask the first question. So we'll just sit through the awkwardness until someone asks the first question. We got that? Okay. So, that, thank you. <laughs> uh, actually, it isn't for me. It's for a friend. That sounds like a setup, but it's true. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, he's not here tonight. He couldn't come. He lives out of town. But... He's, a, he's an atheist. He doesn't have any qualms about that. And we've had discussions, and, but usually don't go anywhere. But the question he has, I asked him, I asked him, what do you want me to ask tonight? And he said uh, to ask, does God have free will? Does God have free will? Um, yeah, that's a good question. It's actually debated, uh, like everything, by philosophers. Um, and one of my professors said, no, he said, we're free, but God isn't. A lot, most people would say God is, but we're, you know, some people say we're not. I believe God is and we are. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, God is sovereign over the universe and I think he is free to do, you know, he's God. The only thing I would add to that 
Actually, I'll add a couple things. Now, one is he's free to do whatever he wants, but there's verses that do say things God can't do. You know, a lot of people love to say, well, God can do anything. And then the next question is always, you know, so can he create a rock so big that he can't lift it? No, that would be a contradiction. God can't contradict himself. He can't do logical uh, things that don't make sense. He can't create square circles or married bachelors. Um, and, and the Bible specifically says God cannot sin and God cannot lie. So God is bound by his own moral parameters of who he is because he's a holy, just, pure God. So when we say he can do anything, he can do anything within the bounds of his goodness and his, his holiness and his nature. Um, one other thing I just want to say, and this may apply to other questions that will come up, but when I talk to an atheist, uh, almost without exception, there's probably a few exceptions, but Almost always, they didn't get there intellectually. Um, now, they do have some intellectual doubts and questions and things they'll throw at us. But from my uh, experience and watching this, and even from some of what Scripture says, it's usually other issues. And sometimes it's they had a bad experience, a hurt, uh, uh, you know, something, something a Christian did to them. Uh, or sometimes it's a di- disappointment with God. I uh, bought a car from a guy in Denver where I live and got talking with him. And he said, yeah, I believed in God until my girlfriend uh, died in a car accident. And I said, that's it. So sometimes it's a hurt, a loss, a disappointment. Sometimes it's a lifestyle issue. As people are just, if they're really honest, they're saying, I don't want a God to tell me what to do. Um, what I like to do when I talk to an atheist, rather than just kind of sparring intellectually about, you know, typical arguments, I like to ask them their story and kind of get their testimony, you know, and what happened or what led you to the point where you said, I don't believe in God. And I find if we can get there, often that's the real issue. And sometimes, I, you know, I've had friends also that didn't turn into atheists but joined other religions and things because of bad things that happened in the church for them. And I find that if I can get them telling their story, I can usually agree with them on a lot of what, you know, I had a friend who, um, he basically was abused in a Christian school. And I said, that's horrible. And I mean, what, what, if I'd gone through what you went through, I probably would be about where you're at today. I'm not judging that or judging you, certainly judging what happened to you because it was wrong. But then I, I was able to empathize with them, but then say, but you know what happened there? Is, what they were doing was against the very God they claimed to represent. That was not God. That was sin. That was, bad. That was people disobeying God. And I said, in fact, Jesus is on your side on this one. You know, the way you feel about that bad stuff that happened... Jesus feels the same way. And you know what? There might be other things you agree with about, with Jesus if you get to know him. And so that, that's somewhat, if you can get him talking about his story, that might be helpful. Okay. Scott, or which way are we going here? <clears throat> Batman has a question down here. I like your shirt. <laughs> uh, I guess my question is, is I kind of agree with you. I, I went to a small Southern Baptist church my wife drug me there. I was about 30 years old. I asked him, well, I need some proof. And he said, well, I don't have the proof. But after studying you know, a while, I, I realized that Jesus did come back out of the grave. And that was my first concern. 
And, and then after that, then I started reading about the gospel message. And I'm a little confused about the new covenant and the old covenant. I think the new covenant started when Jesus died. Okay? And I think that he forgave us all of our sins at the time. But, and that our sins aren't held against us. But then I hear people telling me that, no, your sins can be held against you and you could lose your salvation. And it, it's really confusing to me because I think he said as far as the east is from the west, our sins will be remembered no more. But I, I'm just, I think the Bible says when sin abounds, faith abounds more. So I, I, grace abounds more. I, I'm just confused on that. And apparently it's confused a lot of churches too. So. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. That's a very good question. Um, where sin abounds, grace abounds more, but that applies to the people who receive grace. Um, it's not, because what some people will do is say, if he died on the cross to pay for the sins of the world, therefore everyone's forgiven, everyone's going to heaven, and it's called universalism. Um, and I think the Bible's clear that there's a half-truth there. I, I don't believe what some people in theology uh, teach, uh, that the, the, the way they put it is the atonement was limited to certain people God wanted to forgive. I don't subscribe to that, and I personally don't think the Bible does either. Um, I believe Jesus died and paved the way. He, he made provision for all of our sins. But it's then conditioned on, a, on our saying, yes, he doesn't force us in. He says, if you will, you know, as, as many as will receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God, as the verse I think John quoted this morning, John 1.12. Uh, there's a verse in Revelation that says, whosoever will come to me. But if you don't want to come, he's not going to force you, and therefore you can, you can turn down grace. And I, d just to give you an analogy, it would be like if I was a bazillionaire and I had tickets you know, for everyone to the uh, Golden State game tonight. Wouldn't that have been fun? But I could have announced that this weekend at the service and said, tickets for everyone. But some people wouldn't believe it or would think, ah, oh, he's going to try to sell me something or there's some string attached. Some people wouldn't come take it. And there's been speakers who have had fun with, with this. They'll, they'll hold up a $100 bill and say, I have $100 for whoever wants it. And everyone just sits there. And finally, it's usually a young person like up here in the front row, comes up and goes, I'll take it. He goes, there you go, it's yours. And it wasn't, no, it wasn't a trick, but you had to take it and receive it. And uh, the old saying is, a gift is not yours to reach out and say thanks. It's like Christmas. You know, it's the, it may have your name on it and be under the tree, but it's not yours unless you take it and open it and make it yours and say thanks. And so I think that's really the answer. The provision has been made. And it's just the most amazing gift. That's what I mentioned this morning, that Christ died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. And it's available to everyone. It's the best deal ever in history anywhere. And the majority of people say, eh, I'm not ready. I don't know if I want it. I don't know if I need it. I don't know if I like it. I don't know if I trust it. And, uh, and I understand some of that, but check it out. My goodness, this is way too important. Uh, I have an, a story in my Confident Faith book. Uh, when, I when I wrote that, originally I lived in Southern California. I used to live in Orange County. And uh, I was into mountain biking. And 
I tell the story about buying my mountain bike because, you know, if you're really into it, you don't really go buy a bike. You buy a frame, you buy the wheel sets, you buy, you know, I, I can't believe how much time I spent researching pedals and saddles just to find the right components. It's ridiculous, but I did all that. And finally, 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 my wife's going, are you ever going to actually buy this thing and ride it or are you just going to research it the rest of your life? I finally bought it and I have a great bike and I love it and, and so forth. But then I make the point in the book, I spent more time researching the components of my mountain bike than most people spend figuring out their eternities. And I think that's really true. And it's like, how important is your eternity? Jesus said, you know, you can gain the whole world, but if you lose your soul, what good did it do you? And so, again, I'm talking to the, I'm preaching to the choir here because you came tonight and you're trying to really get to answers and truth, but it is worth checking it out. And if someone says, I, I have a problem with some, you know, scientific nuance or, or something, then read the books, get a PhD if you have to. But, you know, your soul is worth it to seek out truth and, and to get good answers. Hope that helps with that With that question. Uh, the Jews were, um, of Jesus' time, observed and witnessed many of his miracles, and yet they still had unbelief. Um, to kind of tie that, is there any documentary evidence other than scripture for the veil being rent in two? Okay, you're referring to what it, it says in, I don't know how many of the Gospels, but it talks about... Uh, at the time of the crucifixion that the veil in the temple was ripped down the middle and uh, is there anything besides the, the gospels that tells us that and my answer is not that I know of but John do you know if there's any outside evidence or record of that no but if you go with me this year to Israel <laughs> we'll take you literally to How's Calvary that for teeing him up right Boom. there <laughs> no no We'll take you to where, where the archaeologist believes Calvary is, and you literally, it's above where the Temple Mount would have been, and you can see down to the Temple Mount. You can see down to where the, they would have been able to see where the veil was. They could have seen it from Calvary. Um, it's an incredible sight when you see it. I, I would just add this, that you know that's pretty strong evidence against their you know, anti-Jesus sentiments. Here's the people who just helped instigate the crucifixion of Jesus. And then, like, as he's dying, there's an earthquake and the la things go dark and then all of a sudden the, the veil in the temple's ripped open. That's the kind of thing that unless they're willing to turn to God and admit they were wrong about Jesus, which would be really hard right after the crucifixion, um, they're going to not want to talk about that. Uh, they probably want to sew it up real quick, yeah. uh, literally. Um, one thing I will say, and I'm, I'm stretching a little to remember the exact reference. Um, I know when Lee Strobel was researching for the case for Christ, and by the way, I, I, I've referred to him a few times, and I kind of assume people know who he is, but he was an atheist. Uh, he was a legal affairs editor at the Chicago Tribune. He had a he had a journalism degree from one of the best schools in journalism, and he had a law degree from Yale. Uh, didn't believe any of it. His wife, he, his wife came one day and gave him the worst possible news, as he says. Um, 
she had become a Christian, which is really bad news for an atheist, I guess. Um, and, but that led him into researching. And after about two years of research, he gave his life to Christ. Now he speaks on these things and was here a few weeks ago. And you can listen to his message online at your uh, church website. But anyway, one of the things he researched and found is that there is a record... And I, I'm trying to remember who wrote it, but it's, it's one of these things in history where it's one historian, like a couple centuries later, quoting another historian, and the original history that he's quoting was lost. But it's, it's a, a report of a report that the land went dark, there was an earthquake, and the land went dark for hours, and they didn't understand why, and that that was right at, around the time of the crucifixion. So there is some secular account of the darkness that came over the earth at that time, uh, but I don't know of anything else on, the, on the, the... The other thing you have to remember too, Eric, is that the Romans crucified multiple Jewish messiahs in, in people's lifetime at that time. So th- they would have been like, oh, it's just, a, oh, it's another guy that thought he was a messiah. And they probably, they may not have equated all of that till after the resurrection. My guess is that even the disciples were puzzled by it in the moment. So, okay. Who's next? I have a question about miracles. Yes. How do you feel about them? Love them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I keep referring to Lee, but I, I don't know if you were here at the service. One of the services I mentioned, but Lee just did a two-year research on miracles and wrote a book called The Case for Miracles. And I'll tell you a little secret if you don't tell anyone. That's the next movie. Um, they did The Case for Christ movie a year ago. Uh, sometime in the next year, year and a half, they're going to have a, a sequel movie called The Case for Miracles. And it's later in Lee's life, so his best buddy is going to be in the movie, too. So there's going to there's gonna be an actor playing Mark Middleberg, so I'm kind of excited about that. That's a miracle by itself, it'll, right? It'll there. be Brad Pitt, right? Uh, I was thinking Matt, Matt Damon, probably, but <laughs> duh. Um, <laughs> um, now that the mic is way away from you, is there a specific question about miracles? Or are you asking, you know, is there evidence for them, or are they valid, or do they still happen today? Or? Whoa. All right. <laughs> the thing about miracles is I believe they occur frequently. It's not once in a lifetime. It's not once... A year, it's daily, but we can't see them. But accepting those shifts your whole attitude. If you can recognize a miracle when it occurs, yeah. either to you or to someone around you, okay, that shifts your whole attitude. Yeah, I, oh, I agree. And again, Jesus said, if you don't believe my words, look at my works, look at my miracles. And while, you, as you pointed out, there were some observers who saw the miracles and refused to believe, they hardened their hearts. A lot of people saw the miracles and went, whoa, I'm following this guy. Um, and I think that still happens today. What I thought you, I didn't know where you were coming from. A lot of skeptics will say, well, miracles are impossible. And they go back to the philosopher David Hume, who said, well, miracles would be a, a violation of the laws of nature, and the laws of nature are inviolable, therefore miracles don't happen. And if you study philosophy at all, it's funny because this guy's considered one of the most brilliant philosophers in history. That's just plain circular reasoning. 
He's saying miracles don't happen because we don't believe miracles happen. It's just, it, it, there's no argument there. And uh, he, he's been refuted many, many times. And yet, people still cling to David Hume's proved that miracles can't happen. Um, most uh, people who defend miracles, including Lee in his book, will point out that miracles aren't or are not necessarily breaking a law of nature. And I, I'll, I'll just stop there and say, what are laws of nature? Where are they written down? I mean, what we call laws of nature are just observations of what normally happens. And in that sense, I think they're descriptive, not prescriptive. And so I think the God who created nature can do whatever he wants. But even if you say, even if you say the laws of nature cannot be broken, and, and the classic example is uh, the law of gravity. You know, uh, if I let go of the cap of my bottle, it's going to drop. But I can also reach out and grab it. Now, I didn't just break the law of gravity. I just intervened before gravity took full hold. So the cap didn't drop. So, you know, when things happen that maybe we don't understand, it doesn't mean God's breaking the law of nature. It means God's intervening in nature in ways that we may not fully grasp how he did it. So, you know... For people to say, well, but that's, you know, a virgin birth is impossible. Really? The God of the universe can create everything, you know, in a fraction of a nanosecond. Boom, here's the universe. You think he can't do a virgin birth? That's child's play. So miracles are not hard for God. If, if he's anything like the God we think we know. And the God who created the heavens, the earth, the God who we see in the Bible. And I think that makes a lot of sense. One other thing I'd say to what you said, you said miracles aren't things you can see. That's sometimes true. Sometimes they're very visible. You know, the resurrection of Christ was very visible. Uh, even if no one was there to see him come, you know, out of the grave, they certainly saw a risen Savior. So there was evidence for the resurrection. And uh, I'll just give you, um, I'll give you one example from Lee's book. And I, I highly recommend The Case for Miracles. It's jaw-dropping the stories. And he doesn't just grab all these rumors. I mean, if you know Lee, he's a skeptical journalist. He only reports the stories that have good uh, substantiation, good you know, medical records, that kind of stuff. But uh, there was a, a Baptist pastor from Texas. Uh, sm he was in a small church, and he one morning couldn't preach because he had gotten the flu. And, uh, and his name's Dwayne Miller. I mean, he's, you can look this guy up. You can, I'll tell you more in a minute. But he couldn't preach. He had the flu. It, it wrecked his voice. And the problem was it really permanently ruined his vocal cords. It just destroyed him. Because after the flu went away, his voice didn't come back. And he talked like this. I mean, it was just awful. Uh, it was just scratchy and forced. That's what he sounded like, like he was choking. You want more of that? Yeah. <laughs> it's awful. And uh, it was, it, it, you know, he's like, I'm a pastor. I speak for a living. What am I going to do? And he prayed and he sought medical help. Uh, if I remember the number right, over the next two or three years, he saw 66 doctors trying to get help. And he actually uh, went before a panel of world experts on vocal stuff and they just said, it, his vocal cords are limp. Uh, he asked one doctor, he said, what's the chances of this getting better? He said, zero, just you gotta move on. 
So he had to, he quit his job. He couldn't preach anymore. And he tried to find secular work. He was depressed. It was awful. And then a few years into it, I think about three years later, uh, one of the churches he had been involved in, First Baptist Church in Houston, um, he had at one time taught a Sunday school class there, an adult class. And they said, Dwayne, you know, we know it's really hard and we know it's, it's hard to listen to, but we love you and we love your teaching and our, our, our teacher is going to be out of town this weekend. Would you come and teach? And we'll get a special mic. They had some kind of mic that could kind of go on his throat so they could hear him a little better. And he said, if you're willing to put up with, if you're willing to put up, that, you know, with my voice, I'll, I'll come do it. So they said, yes. So he came and they gave him the text because they were going through a series. It was a text from, um, I think it was Isaiah, that talks about healing. And he said, oh, that's ironic since I haven't gotten any healing. And, but he, he thought, I'll do it. And, and here's the amazing thing. Someone recorded this class. And this is on the internet. And when Lee speaks on this topic, he actually plays the recording. So you can hear this happen. He's right in the middle talking about how, uh, I think it's from, maybe it's from the Psalms, because it talks about God delivered me from the pit, and he healed all my diseases. And, and he's saying this, and he's explaining. And right in the middle, all of a sudden something happens, and he starts to talk more clearly and, and then he kind of stops because he's realizing, and the people are realizing, he goes, I don't know what's happening right now. And people start to cry and laugh and clap. And by the end of the class, he's talking normally. He was healed right there in the middle. And, and you know it's a miracle because it happened in a Baptist church. And, <laughs> and, uh, and guess what? He's a Baptist pastor again now uh, near Dallas. And he's, he, not only is he a pastor teaching for a living again, he has a daily radio show. So, you know, God does amazing things. And that's just one of about 200 stories in Lee's book. There's also a book by Eric Metaxas called Miracles that has a lot of other amazing stories as well. So I, I think miracles are exciting. I think they're on the increase. And I think God's using them to draw a lot of people to Christ. That's great. We got one right here. Yes. Um, hi. Oh, hi. I wasn't supposed yeah, to hold it. Oh, sorry. Okay. Did she try to take your mic away? Yes. Sorry. So you were um, you were within inches yes. of bodily harm yeah. there. That's right. a, so. I have an uncle. I have an uncle that um, has always been very dear to me. And when he was a young person, totally devoted to Jesus, I know he accepted God into his heart. He, um, I, you know, played the organ in the church. Just was a, a, a very much a Christ follower. And um, as he went into adulthood, his faith dropped off, dropped off. And um, at the end of his life, he said he was no longer a believer. So what does God do in that case? Does he say, sorry, you already accepted me, you get to come to heaven? Or does he take that? Like at the end, I, I just want to know if I'm going to see him in heaven because yeah. I want to. That's a really hard question. And, you know, I, I just, it occurred to me, I've been kind of hogging all the questions. I haven't let Sean answer any of the questions yet. <laughs> <laughs> what a guy. What a guy. <laughs> um, 
That's what we paid you for, man. <laughs> I'll, do, I'll, I'll, I'll answer it as best I can. You start and I'll finish. How's that? Uh, yeah, because you may disagree. Um, so I, w- I would say, you know, one, we never know the, the, the depth of the decision that a person makes. And it could have just been a, a cultural thing that I'm Christian and that's what I've done. And he never had a true conversion moment in his life. But, but I, I do believe this, that once God has you, he'll never let go of you. And you may walk away, you know, if, stand up. And if, if I'm Jesus and you take hold of Jesus, he takes hold of you as well. And he'll never let go. And let's say you try and walk away from Jesus. And you walk into darkness. And you may even try and let go of me. You may try and let go of me. But he's not letting go. And he doesn't let go of you. So I know that. And the, the scripture is very, very, very clear on that. But w- when it comes down to it, ultimately, it's God that judges salvation. The only thing we know is that salvation is through Christ and through belief in Christ. Yeah. So that would be how I would answer it. I agree. And uh, uh, I mean, it's not like a worn out record. Lee has another book called The Case for Faith. <laughs> You're like a commercial for him, man. I know. (laughs) This is a problem with doing ministry together for 30 years. By the way, I can give his testimony. So if you ever need, if Lee's not available, you want the story, I'll give the whole thing. It's really good. (laughs) I joked with him last night that him and Lee are hetero life partners now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Changing the subject back to the question. Uh, when Lee was doing the case for faith, he interviewed a famous skeptic up in Toronto, um, Templeton. Uh, was it John Templeton? I think. I think it's Charles Templeton. Charles, you're right, Charles, who at one time was the preaching partner of Billy Graham. In fact, everyone said that Billy Graham guy's okay, but Templeton's the star. And they would preach together, and it was like Templeton shined. Problem is, Templeton walked away from his faith. In fact, he wrote a book called My Farewell to God. And Lee interviewed him. And that's the basis for the Case for Faith book because Lee starts with that whole story and then says, how do we answer those kinds of questions? And it's, it's brilliant. But here's what's so interesting. Even though he, this guy was famous, he, probably the most famous atheist, at least for that generation, in Canada. And again, his book, My Farewell to God, I mean, how, how clear can you get? And yet Lee's talking to him. And, and the reason he had thrown out his faith or walked away from his faith is because of the problem of pain and suffering. How could God allow people to starve and uh, die of thirst and so on? And, and by the way, that's the hardest question. Thanks for not asking that yet, by the way. Um, <laughs> little quick aside, it's always the last question. When I, I go, one more question, then someone stands up and is like, oh, Man, I should have stopped right before that one. So we'll see tonight if the last question is the zinger. But, but, uh, but anyway, so that's how Templeton got to where he was with his farewell to God. But as Lee interviews him, Lee says, okay, well, you know, he, he hears all those objections. And then he says, um, okay, I'm just curious, uh, what do you think about Jesus? Oh, Jesus. Jesus was the greatest man who ever lived. Templeton said. He, he was the most beautiful person. He was the most loving. He was the most just. And he's just waxing eloquent about Jesus. And then all of a sudden he, he, he goes, in fact, if I could just be honest with you, Lee, I miss Jesus. 
And then he starts getting choked up. And he starts weeping, talking about how much he misses Jesus. And you stop and you go, what is going on here? You know, this is a famous atheist who at one time was a follower of Christ. Who, you know, and I don't know what's going on. I don't know if he's a true believer who's on a long prodigal son journey. Or if he was never really a believer, and you know, some people say he lost his faith. I, I am more with you, Sean. I, I believe if you have true faith in Christ, then he holds on to you. But what do you do with that? Well, uh, one thing that was clear, he, he had an emotional reaction to talking about Jesus. And he finally got embarrassed and kind of said, okay, let's, let's move on, you know. Um, but get this. A couple of years later, Lee and I were actually going to go to Toronto because Lee had finished his book. He had sent it to Templeton. Uh, Templeton, Charles and his wife had read it together. He said, well, it's a good book. Good job. Thank you. Um, and I said to Lee, I said, well, let's go talk to him. Let's, you know, let's go see if we can help bring him home spiritually. And so we actually had it on the calendar uh, to fly up to Toronto and meet with Templeton. And he passed away about three weeks before we were going to go. But his wife, who also is not a believer, um, his wife reported, and this was in the Toronto paper, that as he was on his deathbed, and he was at home, um, he was dying, and she was there with him, and all of a sudden he sat up, he said, I can't believe they're here for me. And she said, who's here? Like, what, why, what? And he, and he started describing angels and talking about how, you know, Essentially, just saying God has accepted me, and I'm, I'm here. I am, and it it sounded like. And again, I'm not declaring he's now in heaven for sure. I don't know, but it sure sounded like probably his reaction about Jesus was because he truly was a son of God, who was really frustrated and upset about the problem of pain and suffering in the world, and had you know intellectually rejected things that his heart didn't reject. And that he probably was a true child of God. And that might be your uncle. Um, we just don't know. The, what we need to do is our best to bring people back to Christ. And to present the truth. And lovingly, patiently pray for people and so forth. And trust God who's a good God and a just God. All right. We got one over here. Can you expound upon the spewing out of the lukewarm? Yeah. Um, you, you're referring to a verse in Revelation, I think it's chapter 3, the, uh, it's where um, there's the letters to the churches that uh, the Apostle John is led to write these messages to seven different churches, and messages from Jesus, yeah, and this is to the church of Laodicea, and basically uh, the message is, you know, you're neither hot nor cold, I wish you were one or the other. Um, I wish you were white hot for God and really committed and following him wholeheartedly. I wish you were cold, but because you're lukewarm, it, and it's the words of Jesus through John um, in the Revelation saying, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you or spit you out of my mouth. Um, a lot of controversy, again, about that passage. Is this talking about true believers that are going to lose what they have? Uh, is it just God saying, I'm not going to put up with a church that's lukewarm, get your act together? Is this a warning? Is this a final pronouncement? I, I take it more as a warning, and I, I take it as a warning for all of us that um, 
God does God would rather have us you know say yes fully and follow Christ wholeheartedly he, he, the phrase we used to use a lot of Willow Creek was he wants fully devoted followers of, of Christ or you know if you're going to reject it be honest about it and walk away and deal with eternity on your own um, but don't play games don't pretend don't say oh yeah I'm a Christian but I'm not really you know going to get serious about it and I'll just tell you experientially um, as one who came back I, I really quickly at the beginning told you that I walked away and I was kind of a prodigal son. I was a prodigal son kind of in a low-key way. I wasn't shaking my fist at God, but I was certainly ignoring him. And when I was 19, the thing that woke me up spiritually, I was working in an electronics store. And uh, um, one day I was working and a guy I had known in high school came in and started talking to me, pretended he wanted to buy a car stereo, but it was real clear he didn't care about that. He wanted to talk to me. He was like a man on a mission from God. And uh, he said, he said, Mark, I don't get you. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you claim to be a Christian, right? And I'm going, yeah. I'm nervous already because I'm with my partying buddies that I work with, you know. And he goes, how can you, he's like Columbo, you know, you claim to be a Christian, but, you know, you, you, you do this, you do this, you do this. And he, he's naming things he knows about my life. And I didn't know what to say. I, I just finally said, well, you know, I guess I'm a cool Christian. A special species of believers that we believe it, but we don't get too hung up on it. We're not too uptight about all the rules. and We have more fun. And and he looked me right in the eye and he said, you know, there's a term for cool Christians. And I bit the bait and I said, what's that, Terry? He said, hypocrites. And I, and I got defensive. And I, you know, what do you do then? You attack him, right? So I said, oh, you, you telling me you got your life all together, Terry? You saying you're perfect? You, he said, no, but I'm honest about it. I was like, ouch. And he left and it made me think. <coughs> Honestly, the first thing it did is made me mad. Then it made me think. And over the next few days, that thought, that reflection turned to repentance. And that was actually a week before I gave my life to Christ. And so <clears throat> I've lived the lukewarm life. And it, it's not fun. It's, you can't really enjoy church or partying, you know, because <clears throat> you know too much on both sides. And you're, you're living a life of compromise and um, hang on. Choke, choking up here you know but if, if any of you are living that kind of life I, I just want to ask you why you don't have to I mean you, maybe maybe at this point you have some you're entangled in your sin in ways that it's going you're going to lose something you're going to lose a relationship uh, a friendship uh, a business situation or maybe a illegal financial gain I don't know what it is but I'm telling you whatever it is it's not worth losing salvation it's not worth staying lukewarm or compromising uh, or living a hypocritical life the joy and the excitement and the real adventure is in following Christ wholeheartedly and letting him lead your life and, and guide you and put you on secret missions and, and uh, you know use you to make a difference for eternity. That's where, in fact, I, I, one more little part of my story. I was 19. I gave my life to Christ. It was on November 8th of that fall. 
and I was still working at that electronics store, and I was trying to share my faith with people, and I was part of this Bible study that met. And there was a girl from high school who had been coming to our Bible study. And I, again, it was the one I was going to before I was committed that he was calling me a hypocrite for going to. But then I was like really into it, and I'm following Christ, and I'm sharing my faith. And only a few weeks later, I got to share my faith with this girl named Peggy, who was part of our Bible study. Um, I'd known her in high school, partied with her a lot. Um, I got to share the gospel with her. It was on Christmas Day, just, again, a few weeks after I'd given my life to Christ. And she prayed and received Christ. And her life changed. And then I lost touch with her. This is where I, I grew up in North Dakota. And, of course, I had to get out of there as soon as I could after. So I moved away. Um, and about 20 years later, I went back for a class reunion. And I was given, I have it in my Bible here. Let me see if I can find it. Yeah, I was given a little postcard. And if you're up front, you can kind of see what it is. It's Peggy and her husband. And at that time, they had three young kids. Raising support with Wycliffe Bible translators to go to Papua New Guinea to bring the gospel to people around the world. And I had a part in that as a baby Christian before I knew anything. And you can have a part in that. And seriously, they're still there. They're actually finally retiring now. This is decades ago. I mean, they're retiring now. And, you know, I'm like a spiritual grandfather to whoever they led to Christ, you know. And, and that, to me, you know, that's the joy of following Christ for real. And lots of things like that, where you get to make a difference in people's lives and, and a difference that lasts for eternity. She and I and her husband, you know, and my wife, we will hang out and tell stories about this for eternity. I'll meet you in a million years and I'll give you more details. But uh, seriously, what is better than following Christ wholeheartedly and being used in ways that really matter? Okay, so they were talking about, or Sean was talking about on a Sunday when Jesus was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I know Jesus didn't sin, but it almost seemed like he was going back on the plan or questioning God. And for him to be questioning God seems like a sin, even though. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think he was questioning God. I think he was acknowledging reality because there's a verse that says, he who was without sin, meaning Christ, was made to be sin for us. So at that very moment on the cross, God transferred the sin of the world, or at least all of us who receive that gift. Our sin was put on Jesus, and his righteousness was given to us. And at that point, there was this rift, and it's hard to describe, uh, we don't fully grasp it, but the one who at one, you know, Philippians 2 is a great passage on this. That, um, got, you know, though he was, it says, talking about Christ, it says, though he was in very nature of God, he humbled himself. He didn't cling to his divine perks, but he humbled himself, let go of that, took the divine demotion to become a servant like us, to become a human being, and not just a human being, but to ultimately die and punish, you know, suffer our punishment on the cross to become sin for us so that we could be forgiven. That's the amazing love of God, amazing grace. Um, one other thing, I alluded to this this morning, but I think it's worth pointing to this. Um, you know, at, you know, during biblical times, they didn't carry around scrolls. Uh, 
if you can believe this, they didn't even have iPhones. And uh, they didn't have Bible apps or any of that stuff. So I think they might add Samsungs, but they weren't very good. And uh, I had to get one more dig in on that. So one of the ways they would kind of call people, because they would memorize massive amounts of Scripture, especially the, the leaders of the, the Jewish religion, the Pharisees, the scribes. I mean, they, these were really smart people who were very disciplined and knew Scripture you know, in ways that we can't even fathom today because we just have it also at our fingertips. So one of the ways they would refer to these passages is they would just read or, or quote the first line from a passage. And then everyone would go, okay, that, you know, it'd be sort of like if we did it with hymns today. You know, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Everyone goes, oh, yeah, that's amazing grace. Well, Jesus on the cross not only, I think, was speaking reality because he was becoming sin for us, but he was also calling everyone, all these Jewish observers, attention to a passage in the Psalms uh, written by David. And specifically, it was Psalm 22. And listen to this. Here's Psalm 22, 1, written a thousand years before Jesus was on the cross. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's like Jesus, go, he's putting the spotlight. He's going, by the way, check that passage out. And so I would urge all of you to do that, you know, later tonight to really read it because it's a prophetic passage about the suffering Messiah. And it talks about, um, um, I'm poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. Um, but the, I think in here somewhere it says that his bones were not broken, which is true of Jesus. Uh, my heart is turned to wax. My strength is dried up. My uh, tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, an evil band of, uh, a band of evil men has encircled me. And here's the amazing phrase. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Here's a prophecy Jesus is pointing our attention to from the cross that was written a thousand years earlier. And by the way, crucifixion wasn't invented until about 300 years before the time of Christ, roughly. Um, there's debate about exactly when. But David wrote that his hands and his feet would be pierced for us like six or seven hundred years before crucifixion was invented. And so Jesus was calling our attention to prophetic scriptures that pointed to exactly what was happening at that moment. The Messiah was suffering for our sins. So it's, there's a lot of powerful stuff going on at that moment. Think about in your worst moments what you would yell out. He yelled out scripture. It's a crazy we, we got we got one right over here, Sean. And then, Hi. And then, uh, by the way, then get down. We got some young people with questions, so I don't want to miss these guys way down front here. Somebody I love very much is seeking, and um, a question that he keeps asking me. By the way, I call him Dad. Um, a question he keeps asking me is, how could a God that loves us so much and loves this world so much? How could he reject good people, good Buddhists, good Hindus, good Jews, good Muslims who haven't accepted Jesus, but they live right? Yeah. You guys ask hard questions. This is good. <laughs> um, there's a sense in where, which I want to turn to a different characteristic of God because he is loving. He's also holy and just. Uh, how could God accept 
anyone who isn't perfect or who, who doesn't wholeheartedly seek him. None of us wholeheartedly seek him all the time. And yet he died for all of us, including people from all the religious backgrounds and others, you know, the, all the ones you mentioned and others. He died for the sins of the whole world. And it's, you know, clear in scripture, it's not his will for anyone to perish. Uh, the Old Testament says he takes no uh, pleasure in the death of the wicked. New Testament says, whosoever will come to me, um, all you who are weary and, and laboring, you know, come to me and I will give you rest. Uh, my yoke is easy. I mean, the, the call is universal. And the challenge to us as a church is to take it universally to all people that, that regardless of their background. And this is where some people get, they go, you know, you shouldn't try to convert someone from their beliefs. You shouldn't try... Well, I'm not going to try to coerce them, if that's what you mean. I agree with that. We shouldn't coerce or manipulate anyone. But, but the, this is really good news, and everyone needs to hear it. And uh, someone who's following another faith, it's, it's not true like this is. And I, I know, it's, you know in our culture today, it's so politically incorrect to say that. But I'm just going to be bold about it. I think Christianity is true, and anything that contradicts it isn't. And I don't say that just because I'm a, like a devoted Christian. I've spent 30 plus years studying other, well, actually 40 years studying other religions. Uh, I mentioned this in only one of the services this weekend, but you mentioned Buddhism. Um, people say, well, Buddhists have faith just like we do. Who are we to tell them? Well, do you know that the Buddha was an atheist? Most people don't know this. The Buddha himself rejected God, and he clearly taught there is no savior. And don't make me one. And then he died, and then they made him a savior. And now they have little idols to him. But pure Buddhism, if you, like as in what the Buddha taught, denied God and denied the, the need for or the presence of a savior. And by the way, people say, well, but he was a holy man. He was a good man. Really? What did he do? He abandoned his wife and kids overnight and left them to fend for themselves and went so he could meditate and get enlightened. You know, I know this sounds harsh, but Paul said that if you don't take care of your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So, I mean, I think by God's standards, what Buddha did was not a noble thing. Uh, more than that, I think, and I'm just using this one religion as an example, but, um, and I'm not denying Buddhists can be the most wonderful people, and, and so I'm not attacking Buddhists. I'm attacking a teaching that I think has enslaved and confused millions of people around the world. Um, Buddhism says you get there, and they don't really even teach heaven. They, they, they teach enlightenment, which is you know you, nirvana. You, basically what it is, you quit being a person. You, you melt into the all-pervasive, pantheistic nothing. Um, and that's kind of the goal of life. And you get there by denying all your desires, whereas the Bible says your desires, if in their pure sense, are good and they're from God and God wants to give you good things. Buddhism says get rid of all your desires. Um, and Buddhism says the only way you're going to ever earn your way to nirvana is through multiple lifetimes working off your bad karma. You go, okay, when do you get there? They're going, you never know. I'm going, and what are you paying for? Well, past sins. Well, what's sin? What, first of all, what's a sin if there's no God? Uh, who says what sin is? Well, they don't really know. And I, I talked to one Buddhist on an airplane. I said, well, do you believe in a God who, like, 
has a memory and a mind and who keeps track of what you've done wrong and then how well you're doing, paying off your bad karma. And the, this person said, no, I don't, I don't think there is a God like that. And I said, so you, do you remember your past lives and the, the sins you're working on? No, I don't remember. I said, there's no God to keep track. You can't, you don't remember. Who's the karma keeper? And this person said, um, I've never thought about that. I said, you're basing your eternity on this. And it doesn't even make sense. And I said, by the way, is it even fair? You're paying for sins you don't remember? It'd be like taking my 27-year-old daughter and spanking her for something she did when she was one. It's like, that's, that's called child abuse or, or you know, abusing a person, trying to punish someone for something they don't even know about. That's Buddhism. You know, you're welcome to it if you want it. I, I don't want to get into that. You know, I'd much rather follow a savior who says you've sinned and you know it and you remember because I'm not talking about past lifetimes. This one's got plenty. Um, but I love you so much, I'll pay the penalty for you. I, I just, to me, it makes so much more sense. So I think the best thing, most loving thing we can do with a Buddhist is gently tell them about the good news of salvation, that you don't have to earn it and pay for it and wonder if you've ever gotten there. First uh, John 5, 13 says, these things are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's really good news. And I, I could go through any other religion of the major religions and give you similar kinds of logic. But uh, I just, uh, you know, I don't think it's arrogant to say I've looked into it and Christianity makes sense and it's good news. And most of the other religions are bad news. You know, I just I'll do this one short, but uh, I've talked to enough Muslims and I've read enough Islamic literature to know in Islam you never can know if you've done enough. You know, you do the five pillars, you do the Ramadan is going on right now, and you fast all day and um, feast at night, and you do this whole thing. You're supposed to do your pilgrimage, and you pray, pray your five prayers. And, all. and you go, okay, well, if you're really good and you do all that, then you know you're going to paradise when you die. No, we never know. And by the way, Allah is arbitrary, and he may be just tricking us, and he may say no at the end. That's Islamic teaching. I'm going, oh, that's not very good news. And, uh, and there's all kinds of reasons I don't believe in Islam and their scriptures and all that too. But even if it was true, it's not good news. Uh, ours is true and it's great news. So the most loving thing we can do is share the truth with people and, and show them that there's a savior. He got you tickets to the game. You just got to accept the ticket. So I have a friend that um, I think you could say he misconstrued the idea of election. And he was asking, so how can I believe in a God that says, well, I choose you, I choose you, but I don't choose you. And I didn't have an answer for that right away. So I'm just curious to hear what you have to say about that, maybe. Yeah, um, that is based on a view, a, a real, you know, strong view of uh, what is, again, as soon as I say this, people who hold to Calvinism will say, that's not really Calvinism. But some people describe that as hyper-Calvinism, where uh, God not only draws people to himself, but he rejects and, and kind of created some people for destruction and some people for salvation. I don't believe that, and I don't think that's what Scripture teaches about election. Um, but it's a hard question. It's a complicated question. Um, and Sean, I see your hand. I see that hand. 
Go ahead. I, I just want to chime in on that one because that is that that view of hyper Calvinism is a, about 0.03 percent of Christians in world history have believed what that guy thinks all Christians believe. It's a very small sect of Christianity that believes that specific doctrine. It's extremely small. So to lump all of Christianity and what the Bible says into that group yeah. isn't really a fair question either. So Yeah. I mean, it's a fair question since some people talk that way. But it's not what yeah. John believes, not what I believe. I don't think it's what the Scripture teaches. Now, this, it is a complicated question, and there's some verses that almost sound like that. But I think when you look at the whole of scriptures, certainly the Bible teaches something called predestination. And my summary response to this is whatever predestination means about God, you know, going out of the way to do what it takes to reach people that will follow him. Whatever it means, it doesn't negate the fact that he says, whosoever will come to me, and that the gospel is for the whole world, that he died for the sins of the whole world. He sent us into the world to preach the good news, to share with Buddhists and Muslims and Mormons and anyone, whatever their background, to preach the good news that there's salvation in Christ, and that if they will just trust him, they are part of that group. And uh, then they don't have to worry about it. So whatever predestination means, it doesn't take away our freedom to trust and follow Christ. Okay? And some people will lock on to something like that, and it's their excuse. And my, the end of my response is, you know what? You don't have to worry about those theological nuances. Just say yes to Christ. Just receive his gift. It's amazing grace. Uh, you, you will be thankful for all of eternity, and maybe someday we'll figure out all the nuances of what that means. Okay. Uh, yeah, we got right here. Um, my grandpa is an atheist, and um, we were just talking about God, and he said, uh, if God is real, then why d does he not, like, fix all the problems in the world? Good question, and thanks for asking that, and I think your shirt is accurate. It says, cool kids. I think this is a cool kid here. So he's cool. You know him. You can verify this is a cool kid. Okay, they all think you're cool. You all agree he's cool? All right. Um, what your grandpa is asking, again, it's a hard question because it, it gets into what I said earlier is the hardest question of why does God allow pain and suffering in the world? Um, part of the answer is that if God came and just fixed everything, which, by the way, he ultimately will. He promises, like, if you read the last chapters, he's going to come. He's, there's judgment. There's going to be, a, 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 you know, he's going to balance the accounts. He's, and uh, the problem is the people that say they wish, you know, if God was a good God, why doesn't he get rid of all the evil in the world? Well, is there a little evil in you? Uh, here's the way someone put it. They go, if God came tonight at midnight and got rid of all the evil in the world, how many of us would be around to watch Good Morning America tomorrow? Or maybe another way, how many people who host Good Morning America? I won't go there. But, uh, but God allows, this is at least part of the answer. Why does God allow bad things to happen? Because there are people like us, all of us, including you and me and your grandpa, 
who are fallen people who do things that are wrong and God loves us enough to put up with our junk for a season hoping that we will turn to him. And in fact, there's, you can look this up, um, 2 Peter chapter 3. It's the last of all the two Peter books. It's the last chapter of all of those, Second uh, Peter 3. It says God is, he, the reason he hasn't come and brought judgment yet is because he is patient with us. And so maybe the reason God has not come and fixed the world yet is he's waiting for your grandpa to trust in him first. God's being patient with your grandpa. He loves your grandpa and wants him to turn and receive God's forgiveness. Maybe when he does that, that that'll be it, and then God will come. But, uh, but that, I think, is, is a lot of it. And, and the very people that say, well, I wish God would get rid of all the evil, then as soon as someone t- takes away any of their freedom, they're going, no, wait a minute. I don't want God telling me what to do. Well, which is it? If he's going to fix all the world and, and just enforce it, then he's going to take away your freedom to do the bad things you do. Which, which way would you like it? Well, God allows the freedom. That means there's going to be bad things happening. But he's doing it again. Second uh, Peter 3 says, because he's patient with us. Now, did you have a question too? Huh? Yes, good. Do you believe in super lapsarianism? He's kidding. <laughs> I was going to say he's a cool kid too, but then he asks me a question I barely understand. So, um, All right. By the way, this is Carson Beatty. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was, a, it was a plan. I'm just messing with you. Next question. Good job, Carson. Well, and, and that is a question related to the whole thing we were just talking about. That's a, that's a good Calvinism question. I'll let your dad answer that one on the way home. If he can. I can't. So. He'll, maybe he can look it up on his Samsung. If I did it's before working. I fed it to him. Okay, fun. Yes, sir. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm a relatively new believer. I uh, accepted Christ about a little more than five years ago. I was raised in a Reformed Jewish home. My dad was raised Orthodox Jew, and my mom was Lutheran and converted to Judaism. Wow. And um, so I know what the Bible says that we're to share the good news. And um, it's kind of a two-part thing. And, the, the, and I also have some business associates who are Muslim. And so what they believe is their truth, what my dad believes is his truth. What is my responsibility as a Christian? Do I just love them? Or am I, you know, um, am I responsible for sharing the good news with them, even if they don't want to receive it? Wow, that's where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? Um, before you get the mic too far, when you said that's their truth, that's their truth, is that the, the way they say that, or is that more your words? Or I'm just yeah, curious. so um, we, we just went to Israel with my church in February, and in going to Israel, some of these Muslim friends, they said, well, you're going to Palestine. You know, so then there's this whole, I, I learned about this whole Israel-Palestine conflict from their point of view. And I always was and have been pro-Israel, but now I start to think, well, what if I was in their shoes? How do they really feel, and what is the truth there? So their truth is totally different than, you know, our truth in the U.S. or most of our truths or my truth. And my dad is just hard-hearted and only sees things one way, and it's not open-minded to listening to anything else. Okay, uh, the reason I ask that is, I mean, really, there is 
there is truth, truth, and uh, people have their opinions and their perspectives, but, but, and that's not really what you're asking, but um, I don't really like to treat truth like it's a timeshare and everyone has their own version. Uh, there, there's reality, and what we need to do is study to figure out to get to the real truth behind it. Um, and on that issue you raised, I mean, we don't, you don't, you can be supportive of Israel without being anti-Palestinian, believe it or not. You can say, I want to support justice and rights for people. I want to be um, loving. Um, and by the way, the Palestinian, there's a lot of Christians in Palestine. Uh, it's, it's Christians and Muslims. But I mean, uh, we should be loving and want good for all people. And, and, and I could go more into that more, but that, I don't think that's the main th the question you asked is, is it your responsibility what you know uh, to share? And I think the answer is yes, but that doesn't mean it's your responsibility to cram it down their throat or to convert them by the end of the month or to force a conversation if they don't want to talk. Um, I think there's a winsomeness. Jesus said, "I'll make you fishers of men," and I think you know a good. Fishing involves figuring out ways to attract the fish and not just hunt them. Um, and so I think in trying to, you know, draw them out and be winsome and get them talking and thinking, I think that involves not just preaching a message. I think it involves deepening the relationship and deepening the conversations so that you, you get them talking about what they believe and why they believe and how they got there and um, and to, to flesh that out is a, you know a long there's a lot of lot we could talk about but I mean a couple quick examples uh, with a Jewish person excuse me with let me talk about the Muslim friends to to get them talking how do, you know did you grow up in this what do you believe and um, you know kind of find out, just let them talk about their beliefs. But my favorite question with really anyone, Muslim, Jewish, whatever, is to get them talking about Jesus and say, you know, tell me what you really think about or believe about Jesus. And if they're typical in their Islamic beliefs, they will say what I said earlier, that, you know, well, we, oh, we honor Jesus. We believe Jesus was a prophet, and he's blessed, and he's very important. And, and Muslims believe a lot more than we think they do about Jesus. He was virgin-born and sinless and did miracles, and he, he will return one day. They have a lot of those same beliefs, although they, they're little, they have variations on them. But the, the one thing they deny, in fact, it's called shirk. It's an unforgivable sin in Islam to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and that he died on the cross for your sins. The very thing you have to believe, according to scriptures. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, unless you believe that Jesus, you know, that God raised him from the dead, you can't be saved. So the very thing we, the Bible says you have to believe, Muslims say they can't believe. And what I try to do is get to that and say, well, it's what I, I don't know if you were here this weekend when I, I mean, the services, I told the whole story um, of being in a mosque and uh, really challenging the, the imam on the very fact that they deny that Jesus claimed to be the son of God or died on the cross or rose from the dead based on Muhammad's testimony of what an angel said to him in a cave 600 years after the time of Christ. 
And my challenge to a Muslim, and I, I have a well, I have a, a good friend in LA who's a well-known Muslim uh, athlete. And I just say to him, I say, you got to quit thinking like a religious guy and start thinking like a historian. Uh, the historical record about Jesus was written by the people that walked and talked with Jesus for three years, and they wrote it down. And if you want to know the real record of Jesus, read what his friends wrote and, and recorded of what he said. And by the way, he said repeatedly that he was the Son of God. Now, Muhammad says, no, he never would say that. He, well, that's part of the reason Muhammad said it. He didn't even understand it. He thought that meant God had sex with Mary and they had a baby. And it's like, no, 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 that is not what Jesus was saying. That's not what Christians believe. But you got to read Jesus. It's, it's my plea, I always say, is let Jesus speak for himself. <coughs> you believe he's a prophet, then read what he prophesied. And if, if you're unwilling to read what he wrote, then you don't really think he's a prophet. That's the way I try to talk to a Muslim. And uh, they may say, well, but you're basing that on the New Testament, and that, that's been corrupted. Well, guess what? The Quran says it's not. The Quran says that the New Testament, or that the Holy Injil, the record about Jesus, is scripture, and no one can change the words of Allah. So even the Quran says you can trust the biblical record. Why don't you take that part of the Quran seriously and read it for yourself? That's the way I talk. And with a Jewish person, similar deal. Say, I know that you, you know, there's years of history of animosity and, and tension with Christians. But let's just get back to Jesus. Who was he? He claimed to be the Messiah. He did things that fulfilled messianic prophecies. Um, look at that. Let's not get into the politics of what's happened since. Uh, we can talk about that, but look at who Jesus is. Read what he said. You know, a lot of Jewish people, I don't know what your experience is. I always grew up thinking, well, they're like experts on the Old Testament. They all read it all the time. Many Jewish people are just secular. It's their, their um, genealogy. It's their, their race, but it's not really, they don't sit and read the Psalms and read, you know, some of them do, but most don't. And so that you tell, you mentioned Isaiah 53. A lot of them don't even know what you're talking about. You say, well, let me show you what Isaiah said about the coming Messiah. And read Psalm 22 that we were talking about. Read what Jesus said. Uh, one of my favorite books is a book called Betrayed. Have you heard of that? Betrayed by a guy named Stan Telchin, Jewish man. And his he had a wife and two daughters. One of his daughters went away to college and became a Christian. That freaked him out. He had to get her out of this cult she had joined. So he actually suspended his insurance business for several months so he could study to figure out how to help his daughter get out of this. And he, he describes how in the book Betrayed, which is available, uh, he started reading in Matthew, expecting a book of anti-Jewish hate. And he starts reading, and he goes, this is a Jewish book. And he was just blown away. He had never read the New Testament, even though he hated it. And he starts reading it, and he's, he's like, this isn't what I expected. Well, you can guess what happens. He ends up, you know, not only not getting his daughter out of the cult, he joined it himself. <laughs> he ends up becoming a follower of Christ, as did his wife, and, and the whole family was changed. And that's what happens if someone will seek God and really look at the record of Jesus. And that's a book I recommend. In fact, for any of you with Jewish friends, a book called Betrayed, 
by Stan Telchin. Also, The Case for Christ, chapter 10, tells a story about a Jewish man in L.A. who was confronted with Isaiah 53, admits it's about Jesus before he knew it was Isaiah, and then realizes he just said that one of his prophets of the Old Testament prophesied Jesus. And he goes, what do I do with this? Well, he started studying it. He ends up becoming not only a Christian, but a pastor and uh, of a church. And uh, that's chapter 10 of Case for Christ. And for your Muslim friends, and this is just I, I, for any of you that have Muslim friends, the book I highly recommend is called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, written by one of my best friends, Nabil Qureshi, who has passed away, a young man. But uh, he wrote a powerful book that is touching Muslims all over the place, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. So I hope those are some tools that will help inform us, but also that you could actually give to someone if they're open enough to read it. Hi. Um, if I can even word this right. In my 30s, <laughs> decades ago, I was struggling too with, you know, I mean, I was raised in a Christian home I'm thankful for and um, received Christ when I was a young woman in my 20s. And, um, but I was struggling. I was seeing all the hurt and disaster around me. And about that time, I read a book because I had a friend that was really struggling with why do you even bother to pray, she asked me one day. And what good does it do? You know, God doesn't answer a lot of times, just doesn't answer. And Well, I read this book, Tears for Diane, and, and it was a young woman in her 20s that knew Christ, apparently, from the book. And her parents lived back in the Midwest. She lived out in California. She was abdu uh, attacked and brutally killed one evening on her way home from work. And the parents, of course, their hearts are breaking. Um, and in it, you know, it goes through that transition. But I, so I answered this friend, but I still, I have other people that ask me that, you know. I know that God doesn't always say yes, certainly, to our prayers. Um, I know that he hears our prayers, and I know sometimes it's a no. But when people like that ask me, is there a better thing to say? I just try to say, I don't know the answers to tragedies. I just know that he still is with us. Yeah, I kind of, I think you kind of have two questions wrapped into that. I mean, one is the more generic question about prayer. And some people say, if God knows what he's going to do ahead of time, what good does it do to pray? Are you trying to change the mind of a God who's already made up his mind? Um, and then some people will quickly say, well, prayer doesn't really change anything. It just changes you. I don't like that response. I, I mean, I think it's a half-truth. I think prayer, the, when we spend time with God in prayer, it does change us. So I do agree with that. But I don't think that's all prayer is. Um, you know, it says in James 5 that the, you know, the prayer of a righteous man or a righteous person avails much. I, I know the King James, availeth much. But in other words, the prayer of a righteous person makes a big difference, is what James 5 says. And it gives the example, I think, was it Ezekiel, I think it mentions there, uh, prayed for rain, uh, for no rain, and it, then it didn't rain for several years, and then he prayed for rain, and it rained. It was like, sure seems like in that instance, prayer changed things. So, so 
on that question, I say, no, prayer is not trying to change God's mind. It's trying to ask for something that he would want to do, but to, he, he responds to our prayers. And even if he knows ahead of time what he's going to do, he also knows ahead of time what you're going to pray. So pray, and the prayer of a righteous person can make a big difference according to Scripture. So I think we should definitely pray, and James also says you have not because you ask not. And a lot of us don't have blessings in our lives, don't have things God would love to do in our lives because we don't pray, we don't ask him. Or we pray generic little, uh, what the movie said, uh, baby Jesus prayers, uh, instead of serious prayers and bold prayers and really asking God to do things and, and make a difference. So that would be my response on prayer. But the other question is, what you know? Why do bad things still happen? Why you know? Why doesn't God sometimes answer prayer or often? Uh, first of all, He may answer a prayer, but it may be a lot longer than we think. We may have to pray a lot more diligently than a lot of us are willing. Um, and even when we do pray, he doesn't say, if you pray, then nothing bad will ever happen. In fact, Jesus says just the opposite in John 16, 33. And this is part of why I like Jesus and follow Jesus, is he told us the truth. Um, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. And he got that right, didn't he? Uh, in this world, you'll have tribulation. It's, this is a screwed up world, is what he said. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In other words, it is you're going to go through hard stuff, even as a follower of mine. But stay close to me, and I'll help you get through. I'll help you through the bad things that happen. That's what he's saying. Um, and bad things happen to him, too. Um, but he'll ultimately deliver us safe into heaven and these things are written so we may know that we can have eternal life in heaven. But in the meantime, there's a lot of problems, a lot of trouble. And I'm glad he told us the truth. And I, I follow Christ because he's realistic. Uh, and I, I'm emphasizing that because Mary Baker Eddy told the people who are now Christian scientists that suffering and pain and disease was not real. And so a lot of Christian science advocates and, and propon you know, people that follow it um, refuse medical treatment because sin and disease is not real. And they go to an early death in some cases because they refuse to acknowledge reality because Mary Baker Eddy didn't look reality in the face. Jesus looked it in the face. So I'd rather follow someone that tells me the truth. The, the irony of Christian science is it is neither Christian nor scientific. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I've said that, and people go, that sounds so harsh, but it's literally true. It's not based on science. I mean, science tells you disease is real, right? Anyone in the medical profession. But it's not Christian in this sense. We're not saying these are all bad people. We're saying it does not hold to biblical orthodox teachings. Christian science and a lot of the other new age kinds of spiritualism, uh, spiritism, you know, a lot of those new age kinds of beliefs deny the basic teachings of Scripture. So, in that sense, they're not Christian either. All right. So, this is actually from my daughter who's um, home studying for finals tomorrow. Good for her. Um, <laughs> she says, in Matthew 21, Jesus curses a fig tree after he finds nothing on it except for leaves. He says, may you never bear fruit again. And also, in Luke 13... Jesus tells a man to cut down the fig tree because for three years he's been coming to this tree and never once found any. Cut it down. Why should you use up this soil? So her question is, one, 
What is this supposed to mean? How does, us, how does that apply to us and our faith when we do often not bear fruit? And two, will we be cut down since we are using up the soil? Wow. Um, She's going to record you answering this for her daughter. Her daughter's well, Janae, so say hi to Janae. What's her name? Janae. Janae? Yes. Janae. Hi, Janae. Everyone say hi to Janae. Hi, Janae. Woo! Um, thanks for your question, Janae. Um, I think there is, in the fig tree illustration, I think Jesus was trying to give us a very sobering lesson, thankfully doing it with the illustration of a tree rather than you know, a person. But he was saying anything that's alive in him uh, is going to bear fruit. In fact, he says it in another gospel, John 15, verse 5. He said, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. So when we're right with God, we will be making a difference in our lives. Uh, maybe not to the degree we want. Maybe not even sometimes we don't see it. Often we have an influence. Um, I got a tweet this week from a girl. I, 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 I had to look her up in my yearbook to see who she was. But she said, I had had an influence on her life. I'm going, that's amazing. And you know, point being, sometimes, how'd she say her name? Janine? Janae. Janae, sometimes you're having an influence in, you know, if you're following Christ and trying to live for him. And people are watching you, and some of them are, are saying, I'm going to look into her faith. I'm going to think about this. And you may not even know. And it may, it may be 20 years from now, which in my case with high school, it's longer than that. And uh, all of a sudden you find out you had an influence. You bore fruit. And, and I think that's what Jesus is saying, that if you're really alive in me and you abide in me, you will bear fruit. And I think it was also a challenge to all of us to say, live for what's important. Uh, live for making a difference that will last. Don't consume all your time and energy only on, you know, working, making a living, you know, doing the American dream, all that. Uh, not that all that's bad, but don't make it your main goal. Live for things that matter. Live for things that last. And uh, if you do that, you'll bear fruit and uh, you will be rewarded in heaven. And good luck on your test. Or I should say, may God bless you as you take your test. Mark, um, thanks again for coming this morning and today. Sure. Fantastic job. I'm the forgiven sinner that came with the books and got in line first by skipping out on Sean's clothes on this morning's service. So, um, yeah, he asked I... me if that's a forgivable sin. I said, it is, I said it is a sin, but it is forgivable. So We'll talk so, later. So you, so you remember you signed a couple books when... Um, for a Muslim friend of mine and one for an atheist, you actually answered those questions I had for that. But as I thought through this, um, one thing that frightens me about this whole process is I can't give a lot of details right now because we're being recorded. Um, and theoretically, if I gave a lot of details of these people's lives, then I'd be you know, sharing stuff that's not appropriate. Sure. So given the nature of where we're at today, and we have a lot of people on Instagram, share uh, Facebook and all the Twitter stuff, what is your way of regulating how much you allow yourself to be publicly available through, say, the Internet as opposed to one-on-one -on -one and, and all the balance in between? Um, what I do, like this gal that wrote me and said, thanks for your influence on my life, 
I said, I, I, that was on Twitter. I, that's all I do is Twitter. I'm not, I, I can't even hardly keep up with that, much less all the other forums. My kids do Snapchat. It drives me crazy. Uh, it disappears. It's like, wait, wait, I want to see that. But anyway, I digress. Um, so what I did in her case is I publicly said, oh, thanks, it's very encouraging, thanks so much. And then I, uh, I then did one more message. I said, by the way, uh, I, I don't know if you've tracked what I've done since then, but I write books on faith. And, and she had already said I encouraged her in her faith. Um, so I just said, um, if you follow me and then direct message me, if you want to send me an address, I'd be happy to send you a book. And then she did direct message, and then the conversation. I felt much more free to really interact with her. And now I'm going to send her one of my books that really, you know, I hope will encourage her spiritually. So to me, it's just kind of a wisdom thing of saying, God, you know, give, help me to be wise how much to say in a public forum versus then going to more of a, you know, let's talk email or phone or, or even meet in person or whatever. Um, but I, I will say this, look for opportunities. Um, Colossians 4 or 5 says, act with wisdom toward outsiders and make the most of every opportunity. And I'll, I'll share one story, another Twitter story. Um, I follow some people who do a lot of work with reaching Muslims. And some of them are like gentle, loving, warm Christians. Some of them are bombastic. I call them good cop, bad cop apologists. You know, and I, I follow one guy. He's just really in your face. And he leads lots of Muslims to faith because he tells them the truth in a way that they can respect. But, but there was a guy who I could tell he was a more gentle soul that was trying to get his question answered and kind of got trampled on uh, social media, which happens a lot, doesn't it? Uh, I can't believe the things people say to each other. It's like they forget these are people. Um, and I could preach on that, but I won't. But so I, I reached out to the guy. I said, hey, um, his name is Fazil. And I said, Fazil, um, you don't know me, but I'm friends with the guy you, that you're following on Twitter and, and watching. And I'm also friends with Nabil Qureshi, who since has passed away, but the one I mentioned that wrote Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. I said, if you have any questions that they're not answering, I'll try to help. Well, he immediately picked up on it. And again, I, I did a little bit of public stuff, and I said, hey, let's, let's go direct message. And it turned out this guy was from the United Arab Republic, or is that UAB? Is that right? Um, Emirates. Um, but he was from India, grew up Muslim. Well, I, I started working, because he was very open. He had questions. I said, if I had a Christian friend meet with you, would you meet with him? He goes, sure. So I worked through some friends who do work overseas. I finally got a contact in the United Arab Emirates that was going to meet with him. And then he moved back to India. So I started over, and I'm trying to find someone in India. And then he moves to Canada. Well, anyway, long story short, I've hooked him up with some friends that work for Ravi Zacharias Ministries. They have met with him. Um, I introduced him to a guy in Toronto who works for RZIM. My, my Muslim friend was just in his wedding. And he has now spent time in homes of pastors and missionaries. And he has basically now told me, I, I realize that Islam is not true, you know, and what it says about Christ. But I can't become a Christian because my family would reject me. So he's right in the balance. But I just tell you all that. If you think of Fazil, pray for him. But I just tell you all that to say, you know, you, God can really use you. 
on social media, but you know, I think you got to get out of the firing zone and all the you know, trash talk that people are doing and pray for, you know, wisdom to find people that are really interested and open and, and seeking truth and uh, get in a private forum with them where you can talk about it and, uh, and see how God will work. Uh, I'll add one more thing. I just, in light of a lot of things that have been happening in the church in recent years, um, like I mentioned, this woman that I'm now direct messaging, as soon as she reads the book or gets interested and wants to do more, I will hook her up with a sister in Christ to go the next steps and maybe try to meet with her and so on. I think we have to be wise how far we go with, with people, especially in, you know, from another gender. But, um, but I think we should start. Jesus talked to the woman at the well, a man talking to a woman. You know, but I think you just got to be wise on that kind of thing as well. Uh, thank you for showing up. I've been a fan of yours for a long time. Uh, wow. First of all, uh, yeah, your work becoming a contagious Christian changed completely the way I, I see evangelism. Not only did it open me up to it, but I also teach it uh, according awesome. to what, thank you know, you. your six styles have been awesome. Um, I have a passion for apologetics, and uh, a couple of weeks ago I was doing a Q&A session with high school kids. And one of the questions they had was they asked to... Uh, explain the Trinity. And honestly, I kind of, I wasn't real comfortable with how I was able to answer or not answer. So I'd really like to get your take on the Trinity. Yeah. Um, it obviously, it's, it's a good question. It's a basic question, but it's also a hard question because it's something we can sort of understand and sort of explain, but not fully comprehend. And so I actually go back to some of the people that I learned from back many years ago. I don't know if you've heard of Walter Martin. Uh, he wrote a book called Kingdom of the Cults. He was always defending the Trinity from various sects and cults and so on. Uh, I liked his approach, and I use it today, and that is I say the Bible teaches four truths. Um, first truth is it teaches there's only one God. You know, Deuteronomy 6.4 and lots of other passages very clear there's only one God. And that's a good place to start with Mormons who believe in many gods. A lot of people don't know that, but Mormons do. But there's only one God, okay? Second truth is the Father is God. And almost no one argues with that because he's the Heavenly Father. Of course he's God. Third truth is Jesus is God. And Scripture is super abundantly clear on this if, you, if you're open to it. You know, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Um, Colossians 1, that, he, you know, he, the, the God, you know, how does it say it? He, he dwelt bodily, you know, God had dwelt bodily in Christ. Um, there's lots of passages. Philippians 2, even though he was God, he humbled himself, took the form of a servant. So Jesus is God, the Son is God. And then the fourth truth is the Holy Spirit is God. And there's passages that make that very clear. And then you end up saying, whatever you believe, you got to hold those four truths in tension. That there's one God and that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God. And what you end up with just naturally is what we call the Trinity. And people will love to say, you know, well, the word's not in the Bible. It's like, so what? It's just a a word that describes four biblical teachings. And it, what, if you break it down, it means tri-unity. There are three, you know, tri is three. There are three persons in the one God. Uh, unity, there's only one God. 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So there are three persons in the one God, or as my mentor used to say, three who's in one what. Now, I've, I've explained all that, and that is biblical, and it is solidly defensible. Uh, but again, you can't fully comprehend it. Now, I've had Jehovah's Witnesses say to me, all right, but that's so complicated. What we believe is a lot simpler. And, and then I had one, I remember he said, why would God make it so hard? And my response to him was, I said, listen to what you just said. Why would God make it so hard? We're talking about the nature of God. This is not a story he made up for our consumption. This is a revelation of the nature of the God who created the universe. I said, it would, not only is it not surprising to me that he's more complex than my puny brain, it would be surprising to me if he wasn't. And so, yeah, I can't fully comprehend all of that, but it's very clear. One God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus taught it. He said, baptize, you know, go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's very clear in Scripture. So, We got time for one more, and this is Gio. He's 10. Gio, I met, yeah, I said hi to Gio earlier. I signed a book for him. All right. Have you read it yet? No. (laughs) You got time. So, how could you tell that Jesus is actually real? Um, do, now, when you say that, do you mean that Jesus really lived, that he was a real historical person, or do you mean what? Like, how could you tell that he was actually in this world? Well, that that's really more of a historical question. Um, because... Uh, you know, there's all kinds of evidence of the fact that, you know, the, that Jesus um, changed history, that he challenged the religious establishment, that the whole calendar is based on his birth. You know, the whole, the whole human history is divided into B.C. and A.D., and the turning point was the existence of Christ. If, if uh, he didn't live, then how'd that happen? Um, there's all kinds of, you know, I mentioned the, the like Pilate, I don't know if you were here this morning or whenever I mentioned that, but Pilate, the guy who tried him uh, before his crucifixion, um, we have evidence, we found the Pilate stone that has his name. The, he was a real guy. I'll tell you something that happened uh, about 20 years ago. Um, we were talking about this last night. Um, uh, there were some people doing some digging in Jerusalem. They were actually, they had one of those little bulldozers and they were clearing an area for a new water park. Uh, doing construction in Jerusalem is a dangerous thing because you inevitably dig something up. And what happened in this case, you know those little bulldozers? I don't know what they call them, but they're, how, what is it? Bobcat, yeah, it was that kind of thing. So the guy's going along, it falls into a hole. Like it falls, he didn't get, I don't think he got hurt bad, but it felt like a story down. Talk about freaking out, right? It's like, whoa. Well, what happens in Jerusalem is all construction stops. I I have a feeling they never built that water park because you have to call the archaeologists to go, what is this? And uh, what they did is then dug around and found out what it was. It was the burial site, and they have the bones, the, the bone box, basically, ossuary, of Caiaphas, the high priest who tried Jesus along with 
Pilate. So we have the bones of Caiaphas, and we have a, a stone that has Pilate's name, you know, about him serving. And you go, these are the people that all the eyewitnesses who wrote it down said about Jesus. So how could these stories be real? How do we keep finding more and more evidence in archaeology um, if, if Jesus didn't even exist? Uh, the other thing is, a lot of people don't realize, a lot of people think that the record, the historical record of Jesus was written down like 100 or 200 years later. They were writing it almost immediately. And the most, most if not all of what's in the New Testament was written in the first century, probably all of it. Uh, John was the last. He may have been like in around 90 AD. But here's the point of that. They wrote it down during the lifetime of the other eyewitnesses, if they were making crazy stuff up, people would have said, that's not what happened. Um, you know, it'd be like if all of a sudden I started talking about something that you know of something that happened in recent history and, uh, you know, maybe take the, uh, the whole war in Iraq and I start talking about how, you know, it, it went really well because then Saddam Hussein became a Christian and uh, now the, the whole nation's following Jesus. And you go, what? what? Do you not read newspapers? What are you talking about? See, when you write, it might be something you could get away with saying 500 years from now, and people are going, what are you talking about? But when you write something down recent, there's too many people alive to go, that's crazy. What are you talking about? And they will say it, believe me. But what we have in the case of the record of Jesus is they wrote it down and no one disputes it. We don't have any record of anyone going, that's not true. And in fact, we have substantiation from Jewish historians, Greek historians, Roman historians, as well as Christians saying this is true. So the weight of history, archaeology, all kinds of stuff, all points to the reality of Jesus' existence. Okay? Okay. Was that the last question? Yes. All right. I just want to say one last thing, and then I'll let Sean wrap it up however he'd like to. But um, this, for any of you that are going, what is this? Um, it's not the eye of Sauron. It's, uh, um, if you weren't here this weekend, I, I gave 20 arguments. And by the way, it's from uh, the book Confident Faith. I give 20 arguments for the Christian faith. And then, uh, and that, I think, Sean mentioned it, but those books, we have some left, and I hope you'll pick those up. Give them to people who have questions. Give them to young people who are facing challenges to their faith. Um, and I hope, you know, don't make me take any home. Um, but uh, I give these 20 arguments, and I said, ultimately, all of these arguments from history, archaeology, science, scripture, all of this stuff, I think ultimately point to the truth that God loves us, he came in the person of Christ and spread out his arms and said, I'll die for your sins. I'll become sin for you so that you can be saved. And that's true. And I think that's, that's the point. This is why I do what I do. I don't like to just go out and debate ideas and win arguments and that kind of... I want to win people to Christ. I want stories like Peggy that I showed you the picture of. That's what I want to be about. And I hope that's what you want to be about too. But the last thought I want to end with, and this is, if any of you have not trusted Christ, this is especially for you. But for all of us that have, I want to give you an illustration you can share with other people, whether you draw this picture or not. And here's the illustration. 
Um, I, I do a lot of speaking. I fly a lot of places, and some of you, I'm sure, do too. Here's the thing I've figured out. Flying, for me to get home, I live in Denver now, and I have a flight pretty early tomorrow morning. Um, in order for me to get home, two things need to happen. One is I have to believe airplanes fly. Um, it's not enough uh, to just say I, I, I believe in aviation. In fact, I can go to the Fresno airport tomorrow morning and sit in the terminal watching airplanes take off and land all day, and I could sit and read books on aviation and get a degree in aviation. That never gets me to Denver, right? I mean, it's silly, but it's true. And I say that to say it's not enough to, to go, yep, this makes sense, I believe it intellectually. A lot of people sit in churches and nod their heads and go, yeah, I think that makes sense, I believe it. That doesn't get you home spiritually. I said two things need to happen for me to get home. One is I, I do have to believe in airplanes, you know, in aviation. I have to believe airplanes fly or I'm never going to put my body on one unless I believe and have confidence in it. So that's the prerequisite. But then I have to climb on board. And when I do those th two things tomorrow, I trust I'm going to be home for lunch with Lee Strobel tomorrow at lunch. And I'll tell him hi for all of you. But that's how I'm going to get home. It's belief in aviation and getting on board an airplane. If you want to get home spiritually, you need to believe the basics of the Christian faith, that Jesus loves you, that he died for your sins, and he rose to give you life and put your trust in him. But it's not enough to just believe it. You need to climb on board with Christ. And that's what we talk about, about making a decision, you know, trusting in Christ. Uh, here at the church, you know, having a light bulb, you screw in, it means I have climbed on board. I'm not just nodding my head, I'm giving him my life. That's where the adventure starts. That's where salvation comes. That's where God begins to work inside your life and empower you to do things that matter to bear fruit and all of that. So I just want to, again, challenge you. If you haven't climbed on board, don't just sit in the terminal and read books about flying. Don't sit in a church and just be a boring religious person. Follow Christ and get in on salvation and then get in on the adventure and tell all your friends they need to do the same. All right? Thanks. And Sean, there you are. And Mark, thank you so much. And um, I just want to encourage you, if you want to get on board and you want to talk to someone about it, I'll be here afterwards hanging out. I'd love to give you a light bulb. That's a, a one way to signify how you get on board. There's nothing biblical about a light bulb. It's just a way we market here. But I would love to talk with you about that. We've got ice cream um, and root beer outside. Make sure you get some of that. Um, Mark has been a gem, and he's selling his books. They're, I believe they're two for 20, right? Which is an incredible deal. He's not really here to make money. He's here to, to get, get the word out. So it's a great deal if you want to um, gift them to someone. And um, man, one more time as he walks out the door, give him one last thank you for coming. Appreciate you, man. So I'm going to pray, and I'll be hanging, up here if you, hanging out here if you want to talk to me or Pastor Scott will be around. Um, and Mark will be out there too, but let's pray and then we'll go, go get some dessert. Father, thank you um, that amid, among, among all the tough questions in this world, there is an answer. And Lord, um, I pray for those that maybe they didn't get their question answered tonight. 
um, Father, that this that tonight might send them on a quest because statements leave you in a state, but questions send you on a quest, Lord. And I pray that their questions would send you on a quest to find you and get that answered, Lord. So, um, Lord, be with them and bless them tonight. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, thank you, guys.